All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for Crow Triple Seven Radio, episode one hundred ninety-three. Uh, Jason Lingren is with me as is usual, and I'd like to wish you all a happy twenty twenty. Uh, maybe I should make a pun. That's really not a pun. How's your vision? Is your vision twenty twenty? Sure, someone's is in this world. The master builders are certain to be busy in this year if you follow. Anyhow, we had a very interesting conversation right before Christmas with an aboriginal woman who shared some ideas about the dream time, authentic ideas, not taken from books written by outsiders. She shared what she was able, which I fully understand and appreciate. It's a very interesting episode. So let's jump in with Manya and Jason Lindgren and uh, talk a little bit about the aboriginal dream time. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. We're doing an unusual record here because Australia is a good 15 hours in front of us. Go figure. Um, this will be episode 193. We were fortunate enough to meet an Aboriginal woman from Australia who's going to talk to us about some of their cultural aspects that many of us here in the West are probably not aware of. As a matter of fact, I was talking about some of the movies where they're trying to show you we went to the moon and they had a, a relay station, we're told, down in Australia. And they always have the Aboriginal elder out there doing something sacred by a fire to support that effort. Just saying. But anyhow, welcome, Jason. Well, it's a fine, good early evening for us, but a fine, good morning for our guest. Yeah, that's true. Um, do we? I don't think we have much of anything unless I'm as well. We got... We're rewriting the the intro music right now. We have a couple versions, but probably by the time this comes out, that will already have happened. Oh, yes. This is the first episode of the new year. So happy 2020, everyone. There it is. This is, I imagine 2020 is going to be a heck of a year. I hope it's not, but it sure feels like, sure feels like there's a tidal wave a coming. Anyhow, anything else, Jason? Nope. Let's go to Australia. All right. To everyone listening, I'd like to introduce you all to Manya Andrews. Welcome, Manya. Yeah, thanks very much, Crow and Jason. It's um, terrific to be a part of the program. Um, I've been a fan for so long and listened to all of your podcasts, so it's just a pleasure to be here. Well, it's an honor that you've been following our work. Um, we put a lot of effort into it at this point. I'm working seven days a week, 10 hours a day just to keep it all going. We're very kind of honored to have you and be willing to talk about things that I think are important. Uh, I'm big on origin stories from indigenous mm -hmm. peoples, and I'm big on cultures who have stood the test of time. So if I'm not mistaken, and I'm going to be careful here, we say Aboriginal now, not Aborigine, right? That's right, Pro. Aborigine um, is pretty much an old-fashioned term now. It's uh, rarely used, certainly not by Aboriginal people ourselves who prefer the adjectival term Aboriginal. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll keep that in mind. I would like to proffer as much respect as I can. So if I'm not mistaken, the Aboriginal peoples have a claim to be one of the oldest, for lack of a better word, I'm going to say cultures in the world. Do you feel like your culture is among the oldest in the world? Absolutely. I'm often touted as the world's uh, longest living culture. Our history uh, goes way, way back, so it's something we're very proud of, and I definitely feel a part of that connection for sure. Is there any insider kind of idea on how far that is that you are going back? I mean, I'm sure we could look up on what the history books say, but do you yourself, an Aboriginal woman, have any idea that you were taught of how far you go back? All we know the elders say it goes back a long, long time, of course, Anthropologists and archaeologists say around uh, 60,000 years 
40,000 to 60,000 years, but more recent work is discovery is suggesting that it may be 100,000 years or older. So I certainly feel it's around that time frame and, and possibly even stretching further. Well, we're going to probably open up with the idea of the dream time here. So all of us here in the in the Western world maybe can learn something from an insider's perspective. But I, I wanted to ask, is there any Aboriginal tradition that talks about a time before the moon? There is, and a time before the flood as well. So um, uh, with regard to the moon, there's some legends. It's interesting that says that the moon was never once in the sky. It was actually down here on Earth and then placed in the sky. By whom, I'm not entirely sure, but I, I just find that fascinating in light of the work that you've been doing. Yeah, the whole reason I asked that is because when I was doing research on other very old cultures or even extinct cultures at this part, um, I began to translate some of the names. I think it might have been South America, if I remember, and the actual name of the tribe or the people was those who lived before the moon, which is why I'm asking. I've bumped into this a yep. few times. I'm hoping someday I bump into someone who can say, yeah, we know all about that. Yeah. Um, but is there anything else you can add? Oh, just just mainly that. Um, well, there's there's a, a, one of my passions is Aboriginal astronomy, and so I'm very interested in stories about the moon uh, and the sun and and or the stars and and so on. But just even it, what's really quite interesting is in none of our stories is there a story about a ball Earth. It's uh, always described as being flat. So I find that kind of interesting, and that the sun travels in the sky, goes underground in a cave and comes up on the other side, and which is um, fascinating, but nowhere suggesting that it's, it's round. That is fascinating. Um, and these are the kinds of things I like to explore from very old cultures or indigenous cultures, because in some ways it feels like they've kind of avoided the modern edits of so much of our information now. But I have to ask, since you brought up astronomy, which is near and dear to my heart, um, what do the Aboriginal human beings use astronomy for? Is it to track time? Does it mark events? What What are the main yeah. uses? The main uses are um, for navigation. Um, so being able to travel. Australia is a very large continent, um, as, as large as the United States. Um, a lot of people think we're just an island, but <laughs> uh, much larger la land mass. So navigation is necessary to be able to tra traverse the continent. Also for keeping time in, in the sense of being able to predict, you know, when certain foods are going to be available and so forth, and knowing when to hold certain celebrations and that during the year. So pretty much what other human beings do. So is there a tradition there? If you're going to keep track of things that your peoples or cultures have learned, is it a written thing at this point or is it handed down ear to mouth? Yeah, it's an oral tradition. So it's handed down. But of course, nowadays, um, our people are beginning to write down the stories so that we can keep them for posterity. So they're beginning to be written down now, but for the most part, it's orally based, handed down from generation to generation. Well, that's a good way to stay outside of the modern edit too, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Jason, you want to lead us into uh, the dream time? 
That's a term I've certainly heard used many times for years now, and I doubt very much that most folks really know what it actually means. So why don't you start us with an explanation of what it is, maybe showcase the differences between what most people seem to think it is and what it truly is. Yeah, it's it's one of those terms that really um, sort of sets the imagination alight. People are really curious about dream time. And in fact, it's one of the questions I get asked all the time, you know, Manya, can you explain what dream time is? And um, it's hard to answer, as one elder said, it's hard to answer because dreaming is a really big thing for Aboriginal people. The short answer is that dream time is the um, Aboriginal English word when it's translated to describe our religion or spirituality of, of Aboriginal Australians. And like uh, any of the world's great religions, really, it, it seeks to explain how the world was created and what is our place and purpose in it. So it covers a wide gamut of philosophical questions um, that people have been asking down through the ages. So I, I guess I've got to ask, is there a difference? So for the typical person living in Canada or Britain or the United States, is there a difference between what you would call the dream time and what I do when I go to sleep at night. When I go to sleep at night, I have dreams. Is what yeah. you call the dream time different than that? It is different. Um, people often confuse dream time with ordinary dreaming and sleep time. Uh, now, while dreams are part of the of the dream time, it's it's not certainly not limited to that. Um, so another way of thinking about it is it's an expansive consciousness that deals with the larger issues, such as the meaning of life and everything else in, in, in between. And um, certainly um, Aboriginal people uh, distinguish between uh, ordinary dreaming and the dreaming that comes from dream time. Beyond ordinary dreaming, it's, it's about entering another dimension or reality with dream time. Now, what's interesting about that is Carl Jung, the father of Jungian psychology, um, differentiated between the two types of dreaming. He calls one the personal versus the archetypal dream. So same, same with um, Aboriginal people. There's a real distinction between the two, but there can be crossovers. So I've tried during my life to learn more about the dream time, but the, the truth is it's very limited, the literature that we can get. And the truth <laughs> is most of it's written by white guys. So I always wonder how authentic yeah. it is. Um, Absolutely. And, and it lacks soul, you know, I think in their writings, which is why I wrote my book, Journey into Dreamtime. It's sort of um, giving them an a Aboriginal person uh, describing what, what dreamtime means to us. And hopefully, yeah, being able to relate to people more on that human level. Well, I was about to ask you, it seems like mm. the word implies um, on the very face of it that there's a connotation that a, that a human being could wake up beyond what we currently are. But before we jump into that, go ahead and tell everybody what your book is and where they can find it. Yes. So it's called Journey into Dreamtime, um, Manya Andrews. You can uh, purchase it from our website, which is www.evolves.com.au, but it's also available through Amazon Books as well, and they can find it there. Okay. You are a member of Crow777radio.com, right? Yes. 
Okay, so when this episode comes out, it'll be 193. I'm hoping we see you in the comments if people have questions or have trouble finding your stuff. But I'll come back to the point I was just starting to make before we showed people where they could get more information directly from you. In in the dream time, in so many cultures, there's this idea that a human being can currently become much more than they are. We see it in every culture. Mm-hmm. And it almost seems like the ideas are geared towards a certain culture, the way they think, the way their language works, the idea of heaven, the idea of enlightenment, the idea, I mean, I could go on and on. Does the dream time, is it implying in some way that a human being can wake up beyond what we currently are? Absolutely. And that also that we can have access to other dimensions. So knowledge isn't limited in in this world. Um, The wonderful thing about Dreamtime, it's very much a personal religion and it's all about the individual gaining knowledge uh, from a source that's other than the one that, um, you know, the Western education system tries to impose on us. You know, so you you can be told, um, I use flat earth, just as an example, you know, you're told the um, the earth is round and it's a ball. Well, with Dreamtime, you can access that information and go and explore it on another level and um, enter a different realm. So, and it's one where the controllers aren't able to control and 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 direct people. So it's it's very it's very much about self empowerment and and asking questions and being able to find the answers for for yourselves. Well, there was a time when I got very interested in dream meditation, um, and I had mixed results, but I was quite old by the time I started it. From the Aboriginal point of view, when a human being lays down at night, goes to sleep, and begins to dream, are they accessing, is that dream accessing a different dimension in that point yes. of view? Yes, you, you, you can too. And in fact, many of the elders will say that they they travel elsewhere to other worlds and other dimensions and come back with information and they share that with the tribe. And so that becomes incorporated into our culture, into our song lines and our stories. So they very much talk about going to another world. Um, In my book, Journey into Dreamtime, I talk about how one of my teachers actually talks about what she does at at night. And she said, Manya, people have no idea what I have to go to do as a shamanic woman. Um, she says, I have to go down into uh, the dredges of the earth and clean it up. And she's, there's a lot of trap there. And um, she gets really exhausted at night because she's tidying up all the, all the, pardon my French, the shit that's been placed there. So it is about traveling to other worlds. So interesting. And so um, in some ways, I'm trying to make parallels because a lot of people in the West have studied other traditions. I think the Aboriginal traditions have been pretty hidden for most people because most of what we can get was written by outsiders. And so we don't see a lot of written tradition, which may actually be a good thing because it may prevent the modern edit from getting a hold of it. But is, is dreaming in the sense that I just described is that almost like an out-of-body experience when it's under the control of the dreamer? Yes, it's an out of out-of-body experience, and um, and you know you you're you're taken you're taught by your elders how to handle that experience because it can be very very scary for people if they don't know what's happening to them and where they're going. Uh, so it is very much an out-of-body experience. Um, you talk about remote viewing is, is very much a strong part of our culture. as something that I've experienced. I remember being um, 11 or 12 and having a remote experience 
uh, remote viewing experience, sorry, happening at the time. And um, I, I didn't know what to do with it. I just went with it. But um, I have that ability to uh, remote view, which, of course, people like the CIA are interested in people like myself who, who have that ability to do that. Well, that's that's this is the whole thing. There's so much just garbage piled up everywhere um, at this point in the West. It's hard to get to anything meaningful, and that's exactly right. When people look up remote viewing here, they get the the nonsensical, you know, super secret agency things where someone remote viewed the things on the moon and other nonsense, which invalidates it all for me. To be frank about it, but I have I met people who were dream meditators, and I wasn't sure what to make of it. But then I realized he was truly communicating with a person in China when both of them were asleep. Um, and I was amazed by it. And I wondered if I just was too old to have started or not very good at it. But Jason, you want to jump in here? That whole concept is incredibly interesting to me. It's something I've always wondered about the validity of, because some of the things that I've seen about remote viewing, for instance, seem like, well, rubbish. But some of it seems to be kind of sort of validated. Has anyone used these techniques to, say, really go out into the universe, whatever you want to consider the universe, and come back to tell the actual functioning of how things really are? My understanding, yeah, uh, certainly people that are, are more adept at this uh, are able to do that. Uh, I remember attending a scientific uh, conference up in Queensland in Northern Australia, and there was an Aboriginal woman there, um, an, an artist, and she was showing all these scientists um, her paintings of the stars, for instance. And she showed one slide, and it was a slide of the Southern Cross constellation, uh, Crux, Crux Australis in Latin. And um, what was interesting about that was it was not about the view from Earth looking toward the Southern Cross, but it was the view from the Southern Cross looking back toward Earth, which was absolutely fascinating, certainly uh, caught my attention. So that dreaming, we call that dreaming, that information is that knowledge, that dreaming, um, it's part of her own family's dreaming and it had been handed down to her, so along with those images. So, yes, that's about um, knowledge of other places and that, and with my own family, for instance, right throughout Australia, um, the dreaming of the seven sisters uh, is a very uh, strong dreaming for women. Um, and the seven sisters is the stars of the Pleiades in the night sky. And I actually have a book out called The Seven Sisters of the Pleiades, looking at stories from around the world. Um, and that's available through Amazon Books as well. But um, in terms of my own family, that information is about connecting with, obviously, with, with beings from elsewhere. Um, and I grew up being told that the Pleiades are our relatives. And um, I would go out and look at the night skies with my grandmother and she'd go, there they are, your, your relatives. And so I would say hi to them. At, at, at all evenings. And so Aboriginal people have these dreamings of the various stars and constellations and, and, and whatnot. So um, it very much is about learning about these other dimensions. And of course, uh, if you do follow the Seven Sisters, um, uh, and the constellation that's associated, associated with them is Orion. And um, the Orion plays a big part in Aboriginal dreamtime legends and so forth. Um, uh, because there are beings that are said to have come from that constellation and come down to earth and uh, given us culture, if you like. So uh, very much so. 
Well, the first thing you mentioned there is very interesting to me because I came across old, old maps written in Latin. They were star maps. And at the time that I saw them, I was completely confused because one view was a human being standing on the earth looking up what the constellation would look like. The other view was a human being on the other side of the constellation looking back down at earth. And for years, I thought about this and not too long ago. Recently, I saw this again. And uh, it's starting to mean something more to me because I think that the idea of that has something to do with out-of-body experiences or the remote viewing. But the Pleiades, there are so many cultures where that portion of the sky. So people not familiar with the sky can get a sense of it. Like where we are in the United States, when Orion's up at a reasonable time in the evening, it's usually considered near the winter time. And so you'll have Orion, which most people can recognize. There's a big orange star to the right of Orion if you're facing south-ish. Um, that would be the eye of the bull Taurus. And then just beyond that is the Pleiades, uh, which Manya is speaking with. And so many cultures have connections to the Pleiades. And another thing, interesting thing about the Pleiades, for those people who want to start filming with a camera, if you film the Pleiades with a shutter on a camera open for you know five, 10 seconds, and then you stack the images, you get a blue reflection nebula. And there is definitely a feminine feel to the whole thing. But before we shift gears here, I guess I've got to ask this question because of the number of emails I get. So many people email me asking me about taking drugs to try to reach a higher state of human existence, particularly mostly uh, ayahuasca, which most people are familiar with. Occasionally, it has to do with mushrooms. And I say the same thing every time. Don't do drugs. And if you're going to do that, you need a qualified shaman because where we live, taking drugs gets you high, and that's our mindset. If you want something spiritual, you need to go into it with the right frame of mind. And I don't feel like most of us living in the United States have that. We just came through the 60s not too long ago. Drugs mean something different to most of us. But I've got to ask, is there any tradition in the Aboriginal human beings of using drugs in this way? There is a pro, not as, as large to an extent as in other traditions, particularly um, in this in South America, for instance. Um, but pituri is one drug that's used um, for these sorts of experience, and very much so, it's limited and controlled by the elders. And I agree with you; it's really important not to just uh, take drugs without guidance, without spiritual gu guidance, and. Um, so when our people would take these drugs to have this wider spiritual experience, broader spiritual experience, they're very much guided by the um, elders. And uh, because there's a lot that happens to us spiritually, and if you're not given uh, guidance, you have no idea what's what's going on. Uh, personally, um, I'm someone, I, I don't take drugs because I I think they, they can mess with your mind, and I believe there's a way to access spiritual information uh, without them. But certainly when I've had some spiritual experiences, it's been a bit like a trap, um, uh, uh, what they call a, a trip um, with things happening. Um, I remember one time I had this experience in my late uh, 20s, around 28 I was or so, and um, where I was laying on the bed and I just came apart and was like, the only best way I can describe it is like I became like, little bubbles and broke up into 
little bubbles. And I was really quite disturbed by this and thinking it was very frightening. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, who can I call about this? And and, and I thought, well, you couldn't even pick up the phone if you tried because you're bubbles. And I remember just um, some a voice inside me saying, focus on your intent. What is your intent here? Well, my intent is to come back together and 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 be one, hopefully. And the voice just said, well, close your eyes then, which I did and fell asleep. And in the morning I was fine. But when I described that to um, some elders, and including some Native American elders that I was in contact with the uh, at the time, and they said, uh, Manya, you're a shapeshifter. That's what that experience was. And um, so that really was the where I was at the beginning of my spiritual journey, if you like, to want to find out about what I had experienced. But definitely from my, my experience alone, you, you need to have that guidance and you need to have an elder beside you ex- explaining what's going through so that, so that it's not a frightening experience. So just to, to put it on the record, I do agree with you wholeheartedly. I don't think most people and and the modern world are prepared to even understand how to use drugs in a spiritual way. I think it's very critical that someone who understands these things train them and show them how to do it if that's what they're going to do, which means leaving your couch in your living room and going somewhere to meet someone who's a shaman or a shaw woman or whatever the appropriate words are. But to get back to the point, what type of a drug is that? Is it something that you smoke or drink? Is it a cactus? Is it a flower? Yeah, it's a it's a smoking um, drug, so it's plant derived, and it, it's used largely in in the in Central Australian region. Um, but there would be some other drugs that are available to some of the different uh, tribes and nations. But pituri would be uh, the best known. So when a drug like this is utilized, and to put a frame reference, before we began recording, I asked Munya if they had animal totems, so she described it to me like this. So you might think of their cultural group, their immediate geographical cultural group, as a group of people. In her case, the totem is a turtle. Then there are like family groups with inside that, and each one may identify in a certain way. For people in the United States, you might know on uh, up in Canada near the West, coast, you'll see clans that say, we're the Raven clan, this kind of thing, to put a frame of reference. But if people were going to use those drugs, would they be trained by a shaman? Would they be prepared? Would it only be done for certain events? Or is it used to try to gain enlightenment? Can you tell us how and why those drugs are used? I can't tell you how many emails I get that people want to go take ayahuasca. It's, it's It's insane. Yes, it very much um, the elders would, um, uh, it's used for a specific purpose, so it's not just available to everyone in the community um, and you would be guided and go through and they take you through with that. And then when people go off and have these spiritual experiences under that drug, they come back and report to the elders so that the elders uh, know what to do with the information that's been gained and can direct people that way but it's it's safely guarded and closely guarded so very much just available for initiation purposes so before i hand it back over to jason i've got to ask another question when i was in seventh grade i read the book walkabout is there anything truthful about that book does that book reflect aboriginal reality in any meaningful way no it doesn't and in fact i often say that even the term walkabout is a figment of the colonial imagination because 
it implies that, you know, Aboriginal people just wandered nilly-willy across the continent with no purpose in mind or whatever. And, of course, socially um, that's translated as, you know, we're lazy, can't hold down a job because, we're oh, we've gone off walkabout. So it's um, a, lot of, a lot of our people find it, um, yes, it is an offensive term used in that way. Traditionally, of course, um, yes, we did go on journeys and sacred pilgrimage, which might be described as walkabout, but as it currently stands, it's it's a term that's not really understood by uh, white people in, in Australia, and so it's often misapplied and um, really lacks total understanding of, of what's involved in that. Is it a coming with, with the idea? Is there anything about the idea that's portrayed in that book? Is there a coming of age for young men or young women ceremony that that even resembles that? Yes, definitely. In the sense that you know you ha- um, uh, you're expected to go out into the the bush, as we call it, the wilderness, and to be on your own and learn how to fend for yourself. So it certainly is related in in, in that sense. But it once again, it's it's to a particular area, you'd stay within your tribal boundaries and not go off wandering into other people's uh, um, country or land uh, because you may not know the geography and the the special stories, the sacred stories attached to the landscape and so forth. So if there was walkabout, it's only within your tribal boundaries. Okay, so Jason, I I did what I always do. I took us off on a tangent when we were about to compare dreaming with totems. You want to jump back in and pull us back on the on the rails here? Well, to take us halfway there, is there an equivalent ceremony to the whole ayahuasca thing? Because the concept of the ayahuasca ceremony is very important to a lot of people, and it's been making its way into Western culture quite a lot over quite a few years now. Is there an equivalent or something comparable in Aboriginal culture to that concept? No, I don't think so. I don't believe so. Not to that extent. So, Manya, I kind of broke the trail we were riding there early on. Let's quickly define what totems are. And in the United States and in Canada, I think most people can relate to the Western tribes who might call their clan the Raven tribe or the Beaver clan or this kind of thing. And there's deeper meanings that I think most people don't understand. There's a reason that these things are used. So can you tell us about totems and if there's a difference between the dreaming and totems? Yeah, they're essentially the same thing. It's just that totem is a Native American term that's been introduced to our language, whereas dreaming comes from uh, Australian Aboriginal culture. But they basically operate the principle. We're talking about the same principle, the difference really being um, semantic. Uh, A totem is a spirit uh, being a sacred object or symbol that serves as an emblem to a group of people, such as your family, your clan, or your tribe. And another Native American uh, term that expresses this idea is power animal. But no matter what their origin is, uh, totems and dreamings operate in the same way. They provide a personal and social identity uh, to an individual or a group. And they empower us by helping us feel more connected, really, to all living and non-living beings. Um, And so that we develop a sense of kinship and kindredness uh, that serves to uh, unite us. So, for instance, my um, family, my clan uh, dreaming is the the bat and um, my personal dreaming is the eagle. And so it's about learning about what those um, 
totems mean and the, and those dreamings. So the way I explain it to people really, um, in, in really practical terms, it's about, you know, that my bat dreaming um, teaches me about self-care and self-protection um, in the way that, you know, bats envelop themselves in their bat wings and their heightened sense of sonic hearing teaches me to go beyond the limitations of human hearing to attune myself to unseen worlds and unseed, unsaid words and to listen deeply. So um, whereas my my personal dreaming is the, the white-chested sea eagle, and as you know, um, eagles fly high in the sky so they can see far and wide, but when they want to um, hone in on the finer details, they can do that also. So I very much see this um, as, as a powerful tool uh, to have to be able to see beyond the cultural landscape that's being shoved down our throats and um, to work things out for myself. So um, it is about personal identity. Um, so our clan, for instance, we will call ourselves, you know, um, bat people. So very much Native Americans have a very similar uh, spirituality to us and I can very much relate to them. So we're effectively talking about the same thing, Pro. That's a far cry from what we do with the bat in the United States. Here it's all about Batman, but I'll pull us back around and, and I'll ask another question that I think people might be interested in understanding. So there must be a time before you have a totem. How does a totem, if it's permissible for you to talk about this, do you choose a totem or does a totem choose you? It chooses you. So with our family totems, that's already, um, you know, that's a given. You're, you're born into it and you're told from when you're very young, you know, we're bat people and, and so you learn at, from a young time. But um, even um, the, the personal dreaming, um, that comes to you later in life. You'll have some sort of encounter with a particular animal or plant or whatever it is. And then the elders will say, well, that's your personal dreaming as, as well. So, or, or sometimes an elder will identify that, that for you and um, will tell you that that's your personal dreaming. Um, but it, uh, sometimes, other times, it's, it's left up to you as the individual to find out for yourself. Well, I've got to say here, before I chuck it back to Jason again, that probably the most important things I've learned in my life have been from other traditions and cultures. I've admired Aboriginal culture for a long time and Japanese culture. And actually, when I was in the Marine Corps, I was fortunate enough to be stationed in Japan for an extended period. So I'm, I'm going to explain a thing about old Japanese culture. And I, I want to see if there's any parallel to how the Aboriginal think about nature. When I first got to Japan, I was literally leaving the airport. I'd just gotten off a plane from Anchorage, Alaska, and I got out. It was like 110 degrees outside and humid. I was instantly wet. We were driving back. And as we drove by the beach, I saw these two huge rocks out in the water, not island size, but not normal rock size, big rocks. And there was this massive, thick, like foot thick rope almost tying them together. And I asked the person next to me who'd been on the island a while. I said, why are those two rocks tied together? And he said, because they've been married. It was later that I found out that originally in some of the oldest ideas in Japan, Shinto had the idea that every object in nature has a spirit. And they might refer to these as kami, 
But what had happened is the two spirits of those rocks, and I saw trees too that had been married in a similar way. When I came later to understand something about alchemy, the idea of air, water, earth, and then of course spirit, body, and soul, these things began to mean a lot more to me. In the aboriginal traditions, is there any idea like this that a rock or a tree or a cactus or anything would have a spirit of its own in the natural world? Absolutely. Um, we believe that all living beings and inanimate objects um, have spirits. And so too do the Native Americans, of course. They call, um, they refer to crystals, for instance, as stone people. So there's that humanizing element, uh, the recognition that those things have spirit as well. And so um, I've been to that island that you described in, in Japan and, and have seen that with the two rocks are tied with the, the ropes and that. And so um, also um, these stones and trees and, and, and crystals and that are family. Um, and so that um, our Aboriginal Dreamtime teaches that everything and everyone is interrelated and interconnected. So we are family. Um, so all of those animals, so as a eagle person, for instance, then crow becomes my brother um, because that's the relationship between um, animals in in, in our world. So we're related to these stones and mountains and plants and trees, and we will refer to them by the appropriate kinship term, whether that be uh, grandmother, grandfather, or cousin, brother. I saw um, an, an Aboriginal woman who is very fair-skinned here in Australia at a university where I was working, and during our lunch break, we were walking through the grounds, and she went up to a tea tree um, which has a lot of, uh, it's a bark tree that medicines are obtained from. And she went up and she said, hello, sister, how are you, my sister? Because in her kinship system, that tea tree was her sister. And she goes, you, you're looking really frayed there. Let me tidy you up. And she began to clear the tree and just speak really quite lovingly to that tree as she would to um, a sister and to a younger sister, especially. So, yeah, we're the same. We have that we have that spiritual connection with these things and they're not just things, but they're family and they're related to us. Well, I'd love me some tea tree oil. That's for sure. Um, mm -hmm. But I've got to say, if, if more people in the world thought about the natural environment in this way, I'm guessing a lot less damage would be done. Yeah. Jason, you want to jump in here? Well, speaking of that, what is the current Aboriginal viewpoint on the state of the world right now, as far as, technology, the way things are going, the craziness that a lot of countries do to each other, that whole craziness. Well, you know, um, Jason, um, our, our people have a, a lower, a shorter life expectancy than the average Australian. Um, and there are um, our Indigenous people have all sorts of health issues. And the way that our people explain it um, is that when the land becomes polluted, we become polluted inside. And so we have a saying, healthy country, healthy people. So when the land is healthy, we become healthy. So um, our, our people are seeing a direct connection between the pollution and the abuse of the land to our own health. And sadly, um, we're losing a, a lot of our people and particularly the elders that, that have this information. So I'm always telling young people, you need to go out onto the land, onto the country and connect 
with the country because and sing the songs that that make the country well and that that in turn will make you um, healthy and well as well. So there are uh, some of our people who are very concerned about what's happening with the state of our um, universe and uh, our planet, if you like, um, and and see the importance of us having to you know, go and fix it. And we do that on a spiritual level. And we're beginning to reach out to other Indigenous peoples around the world. There have been a number of uh, conventions and, and conferences where our um, Indigenous peoples are meeting to, together to say, well, you know, what can we do here? Uh, we need to do something. So uh, there certainly is that awareness about everything being connected and how abusing the land in turn abuses ourselves and, and kills us, sadly. Uh, so, yeah, there very much is that awareness. What are they saying is wrong with the land, which I assume means Australia, that is the most concerning to them? Well, mining, fracking in particular, that sort of damage that's going on with land there's uh, disturbing the energies, if you like, that's in the land. Uh, so, for instance, um, we have places in Australia that Aboriginal people identify as sickness country. Uh, now, they just so happen to be places where there are large uranium deposits, for instance, in Kakadu National Park. And there was that fabulous documentary um, with Derek Muller, uh, Uranium, uh, talking about uranium. And he begins with, there is a legend from northern Australia that says, do not disturb the dragon. And if you do, that uh, there's this great calamity that can come to uh, human beings. And, of course, the dragon in, in this context is the rainbow serpent uh, that's said to lie there and uh, where uranium is. And so our people, uh, you know, uh, try to tell people, you know, don't go digging up the uranium. Uh, it has to do its own thing. Uh, leave it. Do not disturb it. Um, so those sorts of things about uh, disturbing the energies of the earth, uh, um, you know, in, in so many ways. Um, even, for instance, you know, take daylight savings, for instance. It's such an un artificial, unnatural thing, and it's about disturbing the, the, the circadian rhythms in our body. And, you know, uh, so that's another example, you know. Um, people here in Australia just love daylight savings because it means they can spend more time at the beach and that. And for a long time I, I've been saying, no, no, uh, you need to stop this nonsense. We need to get back with natural rhythms and so forth um, and forget about this artificial thing that's been thrust upon us. So so uh, a whole range of things in, in there. But basically not about it's about not disturbing uh, the en energies that exist in the land, in the sky, and and so forth. And um, because th there are some human beings um, who are just intent on complete destruction and, and um, annihilation and, and no respect for nature. You know, nature is much more clever and smarter than us, and nature knows what she's doing. And yet, you know, Western man thinks, no, we can get in there and control nature, and they're just playing with fire as far as, far as I'm concerned. Well, to some degree, what's going on in, uh, in what I see is we see the corporations continuing on in this unhelpful way, but a lot of people going the other way. A lot of people wanting good food without chemicals, organic, their own gardens, these types of things. But um, I have to ask, I had some other people who I used to have on the show, who I really enjoyed having on the show from Australia, 
uh, very awake people, and they didn't see any white lines in the sky. They weren't too sure that what I was showing was a real thing because they didn't see it where they are. Do you see the artificial white lines in the sky? Yeah, absolutely, all all the time, and you know, even as a even as a young teenager, and that, um, you know, you're told that the the, the streams coming out from jets and that is a natural uh, phenomenon of just flying and of that. And of course, now I'm learning about um, the, the the chemtrails and so forth. And I thought, think, yeah, that's what I've seen, and you see where I'm um, just south of Sydney, an hour south of Sydney, and the airport's not that far away. You you see those um, in 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 the sky all the all the time, um, but people are just oblivious to this and they don't question them at all. You know, I used to see all the films we have that portray Australia in one way or another. Um, at this point, about the only thing I watch is nature shows, and even those are almost unbearable because of the amount of fear porn that's been injected. But since I was I don't even know fifteen, I, I thought. God, what a life that would be to live like an Aboriginal in some of those beautiful, wide open, untouched places. But you see, I grew up here in Rhode Island part of the year because we used to leave San Diego. My father was a college professor and he'd get the summer off. So we'd come here and uh, I lived off the water as a child. I would go down to the beach for weeks on end and never come home. If I needed food, food was there. I harvested it from corn to fish to shellfish, whatever we needed. And we didn't work at it very hard either. It, it was not hard to keep myself fed and be able to live literally on the beach, which I did for most of the summer. But you see, now when I'm here, I've made a vow that I won't take any living thing out of that water anymore because there's so few compared to when I was. If I wanted to make a living down there now, I'd really have to work at it to try to feed just myself. Have you noticed this in your lifetime or are things better off in your area of Australia? No, de definitely um, changes. Um, I grew up uh, in the bush and, yeah, enjoying all of the, all of that as well. And, of course, now I live just south of a main city in, 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 in Australia. But definitely, um, you know, I think most Australians, it's about disconnecting with the landscape, you know, the fact that uh, people are, are are gathering in the, in the cities more so than spending time out in the country. I think, you know, just a couple of generations ago, um, um, most Australians were out in the bush and on the land and now having to come into the cities to get jobs and that there's a, a real disconnect going on there. What's interesting is that I'm going to be involved in a um, ABC production, television production here in Australia called Back to Nature, uh, which will uh, is commencing in the new new this year, uh, twenty twenty, and uh, it's all about encouraging people to get back to nature and experience nature, uh, using um, Aboriginal narratives of the land and that to encourage them to go back, and and get in touch uh, with that. But a lot of people are being cut off from from nature, so. Mm. Well, I, I think most people who grew up in different areas uh, and didn't have weren't fortunate enough to be like I, I grew up in the eastern hills of San Diego County. I literally lived in the hills as a kid and I learned so much from nature, even to the point where one of the big tests to prove how manly you were was to catch all kinds of snakes and mm. who could do it without being bit or who could catch a dangerous rattlesnake. And what I came to understand is there is a level of communication between a human being and even a snake 
something, you know, you, most people would think a snake, there's, you know, there's not enough brain there to communicate, but in fact there is, it's just not communication like you're used to. So before we wrap up the first hour, I'll ask, is it typical in an Aboriginal tradition to be able to communicate on some level with animals, with wildlife? Absolutely. And a large part of that is your dreaming. Um, so that if your dreaming is eagle or crow or whatever, then you have the ability to communicate with that animal. But it's interesting you mentioned snakes, um, crow, because um, in Northern Australia, in Arnhem Land, the Aboriginal people there have a tradition that when someone is bitten by a snake, what happens is they tie up the snake and the human being and they place them there and they say to the um, snake, now you're not going until you heal the person that you've bit. So they're really quite interesting um, approach um, that is, it's not about killing the snake for what it's done, but about uh, negotiating with the snake about um, the wellness uh, of the human being. So uh, very much so it's all the time about communicating with animals um, on a deeper, deeper level um, and through language and and um, and so forth, those sorts of interactions. But definitely it's, it's all about uh, learning to talk to the animals, if you like. I think a lot of people listening are thinking we're crossing the poppycock threshold, but I, I assure you we're not. There were a lot of snakes and there wasn't much else in the hills. And so catching snakes became one of the main things when we were young. And there are certain kinds of snakes that just are grumpy. They don't want to be touched by a human being. We knew these things. And I think I was only bit a couple times by non-venomous snakes. But I had a friend that I grew up with that was never bit once by any snake and he used to even catch the grumpy ones and touch his nose to the nose of the snake and he still wouldn't get bit there was something to it and i knew it I, it used to irk me because i wished i could do it you know because he was gonna he was gonna be the coolest kid in the crew because he could pick up this mean gopher snake and touch his nose to it but jason we're getting close to the top of the hour here is there anything you want to add in before we begin to wrap up and prep for hour two well, we don't have time for what I want to ask, but I think it would be really interesting to open the second hour with a description of the Aboriginal creation story, because we kind of started with that and then moved away from it, and I'd like to hear the whole thing. Okay, um, I think that's a good idea. We'll plan to open with the creation story, Amanya, if, if that's something that's permissible to speak about. But before we wrap up, can you just tell everyone one more time how they can contact you and where they can find your materials? Yes, um, people can contact me through um, my website, www.evolve, with an S, evolves.com.au, and my book, Journey into Dreamtime, is available through our website, but also through Amazon Books. Um, and so people can leave a message on, on the website for me, and I always get back to people. So um, that's a great, great way to get in touch with me. Another way is through email, uh, just um uh, Manya, lowercase, M-U-N-Y-A, at evolves, again with an S, dot com, dot A-U. Just so everybody knows, anyone at any time who can't figure out how to make contact with some guest we've had, uh, Rose will hook you up with anybody, anytime. Uh, Manya will be over at crow777radio.com in the membership area in the comments below if you have questions. But that does bring hour one of episode 193 to a close. Please join us over at the Free Speech Zone, where the human mind is allowed to soar as high as it will without constraint 
at crrow777radio.com. That's crow777radio.com. It is the only true crow site, and there are people out there faking it. So join us. Cheers. Is the enemy of knowing.